focus on headline. And let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, uh, joining us in the studio, we have our reporters Han Dan and Chan Song Cho. Guys, welcome back. Good, Good evening. evening. So, uh, my goodness, we're going to go from uh, not really talking much about uh, COVID-19 to starting things off with some COVID-19 updates now. Uh, the Omicron subvariant that we're probably going to be talking a lot about and moving forward is the BA5. Uh, this is... Now, technically, uh, the dominant variant here in the country, as the country continues to add th- tens of thousands of new cases every single day here. Tan, let's get the latest details of this. Right. Korea added more than 76,400 cases today, remaining in the 70,000 range for the second day. The cumulative caseload is now inching close to 19 million. Daily new infections almost doubled from last week and are almost four times higher than two weeks ago. With cases doubling from week to week, the seven-day average now stands at roughly 48,000. And as authorities have projected, the number of imported cases keep rising, recording roughly 430 cases. Cases today hitting the highest level since the first COVID case was found in the country in January 2020. The number of severe cases rose slightly to post 96, with hospital bed occupancy rate standing at around 16% nationwide. 12 people died of COVID overnight. The Central Disease Control Headquarters has said medical operations remain stable and Korea can take up to 850,000 PCR tests a day. And SJ, you've been stressing a lot about the importance of COVID treatment, right? Yes, yes. And authorities say there are enough edible COVID pills for 200,000 patients per day. And they project the number of daily cases to reach 300,000 during the peak. That's actually a lot because, uh, you know, for one thing, you'll probably get maximum, they're saying, 200,000 patients per day. Um, but uh, not everyone needs these uh, treatments, right? Uh, in fact, that's the good thing. I mean, it seems like the Omicron subvariant isn't as strong as, let's say, the Delta variant. And so, uh, really, uh, with the although it, some of the health experts have said that the vaccines still somewhat work, uh, it's just a matter of kind of uh, getting the uh, the virus and just being treated. And uh, the, luckily now the virus isn't as strong. So for the elderly patients and also for those with the underlying illnesses, a uh, treatment is the most important thing. But again. The BA5 subvariant, this is spreading like wildfire right now. And it's not surprising, especially because health experts did say that, I mean, this is highly transmissible. If you thought the Omicron BA1, BA2 was highly transmissible, uh, this is far more uh, transmissible here. With this, the government has laid out new countermeasures to curb the spread. So, Tan, walk us through the key points here. SJ, there are four main points to the new guidelines. First is the expansion of COVID-related medical operations. The government plans to expand the number of one-stop clinics from the current 6,500 to 10,000 within this month, where we can get tested, consult with a doctor, and get necessary prescriptions all at once. 4,000 hospital beds will also be added to manage up to 300,000 COVID patients per day. COVID treatments, enough to cover 940,000 patients, will be additionally secured by the first half of next year. Secondly, the supply of self test kits will be expanded, temporarily allowing the kits now on high demand to be sold at every convenience store. 70 additional COVID-19 test sites will be set up nationwide, which will run on the weekends as well. And lastly, quarantine measures will be boosted at nursing homes and facilities and mental institutions. 
in-person visits will be banned again, while all staff members are mandated to get a PCR test once a week. Yeah, we've been uh, recently seeing some uh, infections pop up amongst our colleagues. So uh, we were all getting tested with these uh, self-test kits and uh, these conveniences. They're, they're running out of these test kits once again. Uh, it went from no one really purchasing it anymore to now again. It's a deja vu all over again. Yeah, it's deja vu all over again, right? A great quote by uh, Yogi Berra back in the days. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, it's the resurgence. I mean, this was expected. So what are we going to do at this time? Uh, things are certainly not looking great for China either, with more than a dozen Chinese cities grappling with the COVID-19 outbreaks driven by these Omicron subvariants. New COVID-19 cases in the country jumping to almost 1,000 for Tuesday, which, by the way, guys, I don't think 1,000 is a lot compared to some of the other countries, but especially with China, with their strict lockdown measures, 1,000 seems a lot for them. Uh, and this is their highest daily tally in two months. So, uh, Song Chou, you have more on this. Right. It is a big thing in China because they have maintained their hardline zero COVID policy. Um, so, yes, let's look at the situation there. China reported 935 cases for Tuesday, which is up from 699 on Monday. The majority of cases are centered in the hot spots of the Guangxi region in the south, which recorded 277 cases on Tuesday, and it took its total since the outbreak there flared a week ago to 1,106. Now, in a resort town in the region, uh, Beihai City on Weizhou Island, more than 2,000 tourists have become stranded after more than 500 infections were reported over the past week there, uh, which is a major outbreak by China standards. The remote northwestern province of Kansu, which reported 353 new infections, took its current outbreak to 1,306. Most of Kansu's capital, the city of Lanzhou, has been locked down for almost a week, as SJ mentioned, and city officials on Tuesday launched what's called a door-knocking campaign to route out hidden cases. So 10,000 medical workers were going around the province, going door-to-door to carry out PCR testing, in the city's high and medium risk areas. In Guangzhou City's Liwan district, authorities even broke into homes of people who had been taken to a quarantine hotel. So they basically broke into empty homes um, because they thought that maybe there could be close contacts hiding inside and they wanted to disinfect the premises as well without the people actually, the owners of the houses being there. Oh my. Meantime, a move by Beijing to extend a ban on hotels hosting weddings, parties and conferences despite the low number of cases in the capital has certainly stirred criticism on social media platforms. The city recorded just one case on Tuesday and daily infections have held in single digits for almost five weeks. But China's leadership is showing no sign of abandoning its zero COVID policy and people are continuing to feel frustrated with routine testing and quarantines, even while the rest of the world has opened up to living with the disease. China's economy recently reported its worst quarterly performance in more than two years. The pandemic even prompted the Hangzhou Asian Games to be rescheduled to start on September 23rd next year, more than 12 months after the original date, uh, which was originally scheduled to take place this year on September 10th, affecting more than 10,000 athletes and officials from 45 countries or territories. 
the announcement was made by the governing Olympic Council of Asia on Tuesday. Which is crazy, which, by the way, because uh, China did recently, uh, a few months ago, they canceled their hosting rights to the Asian Cup football tournament, a major football tournament that's slated to take place in 2023. Not even this year, 2023, they canceled and they said because of COVID-19 stuff, we, we, I don't think we can host it. And so now South Korea is trying to get the bidding rights for this. But I had a chance to speak to a, a health expert who's over in uh, Hong Kong. Hmm. Uh, and what he said was the biggest problem with China is because they've been so strict with these uh, measures in place and uh, the low numbers, they're just unable to achieve herd immunity, hmm. right? So like there's two ways to reach hmm. herd immunity. It's either you just get the vast number of people to get vaccinated, which by the way, uh, from what I understand, vaccination rates in China is quite low. It, it's actually not high. Uh, in fact, even the elderly population aren't really getting COVID, uh, the COVID-19 vaccines. Not to mention if they have you know, only 1,000 people per day are getting infected, they're just not able to achieve herd immunity whatsoever. So it's delaying it over and over, like it's just prolonged, right? And so that's been kind of the backlash on uh, what China has been doing with these uh, zero COVID policy, that the fact that it actually doesn't seem to be working mm. right now. And in fact, they're just going to be facing even more b- bigger problems uh, moving forward. Uh, but in the meantime, the pandemic situation also worsening quickly in other parts of the world, especially in Europe and the United States as well. This which shows us uh, that COVID-19 is uh, definitely not over yet. Tan, let's get more on those regions. Esther, there were clear signs of another possible big spread in Europe and the U.S., but amid government indifference, the number of COVID cases have rebounded to the highest level we've seen in several months. The New York Times slammed the U.S. government for not taking necessary actions such as reintroducing mandatory mask wearings, blaming it for the fast-rising number of COVID cases, which surged in at least 40 states, including the southern and western states. The seven-day average now stands at nearly 130,000, up by 15 percent from just two weeks ago. The number of daily hospital admissions surpassed 40,000 for the first time in four months. And things aren't much better in Europe, a popular travel destination for the summer holiday for tourists from all over the world. According to a statistics website, Our World in Data, France saw the world's largest number of daily COVID cases earlier this month, with cases reaching nearly 230,000. Neighboring Germany, Italy, and the UK are all so adding over 100,000 cases a day, staying at the top of the global list. Executive Director of the WHO Health Emergencies Program, Michael Ryan, has said an intense wave of COVID-19 is passing through Europe again as people are swapping one kind of mixing for another, such as attending large concerts and traveling more during the summer season. That's right. And we've also been seeing a lot of uh, concerts take place here in Korea. So it's just a matter of time when we get uh, bigger numbers uh, Hundreds, 100,000 plus is what uh, some of the experts are predicting here. Uh, we're going to move on to other news here. Uh, I love how Song Cho wrote, exciting news for Top Gun fans. <laughs> I, I, I did not watch that movie. Uh, I, cried. Did not. I cried the second one. I didn't even watch it. I don't even know. I never even watched the first one. Uh, but yeah, I heard, what is it called? The Top Gun Maverick? Is, is yeah, that what it's called? Maverick. All right. So all you Maverick fans out there, good news here. South Korea's homegrown fighter jet successfully completing its first test flight on Tuesday. Uh, this following a successful ground test in late June. 
so, so this puts the country's eighth in the world to have developed a supersonic fighter jet. So what, what do you have on this? Yes, yeah, so the flight is called KF-21. Uh, it's also known as Porame in Korean. It took off at 3.40 p.m. from an Air Force base in the southeastern city of Sacheon and flew for about 30 minutes. And this is according to South Korea's Defense Acquisition Program Administration. The, the plane was armed with four medium-range air-to-air missiles. Um, the missiles are called Meteors, with a combat range of 200 kilometers. And the jet was piloted by Major An Jun-hyun of the Air Force Test and Evaluation Unit. It flew at a speed of about 400 kilometers per hour. Jeez. But it, the, the, the jet was actually uh, designed and it's capable of flying at a top speed of 1.8 times the speed of sound, which means 2,235 kilometers per hour. <laughs> Is that humanly possible? <laughs> That's I, I why they, we're calling it supersonic. Right, I mean, they, they do tests, right, mm-hmm. to, to see whether or not they could hit like Mach 1 and Mach 2 mm-hmm. and things like that. This is Mach 1.8, by the way. Anyways, right. wow, I can't Just believe Just Mach that. 1.8? Right, because if you watch Top Gun, they it's talk Mach about Mach 10. 10. <laughs> oh, wow. Now I but get it. But actually, those jets don't exist mm, in reality, right, so right. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so Tuesday's flight came more than 20 years after the country, under the Kim Dae-jung administration, officially announced that it will develop its own advanced fighter jet. And six years after actual development began by Korea Aerospace Industries, or CHI, in 2015, the first prototype of the KF-21 was unveiled in April last year, hailing the aircraft as the future backbone of its air force and a step towards greater military independence in North Asia. Obviously, Korea wants to keep pace with neighbors such as China and Japan. The next-generation aircraft was developed in a $6 billion project, partially backed by Indonesia, and it's designed to be a cheaper, less stealthy alternative to the U.S.-built F-35, on which South Korea pretty much relies. Plus, developing the KF-21 was a key part of South Korea's project that's aimed at replacing its fleet of aging F-4s and F-5s. Kai plans to conduct around 2,000 test flights, or uh, the technical term for it is sorties, with six prototypes until June 2026, followed by mass production in the same year. The Korea Air Force plan for now is to deploy about 120 KF-21s by 2032. So far, countries including the U.S., Russia, China, Japan, France, Sweden, and the European Consortium comprised of UK, Germany, Italy, and Spain have developed such aircraft. I mean, this is this is incredible. I can't believe how fast these uh, planes fly and how these pilots, right, are able to kind of, you know, with, withstand uh, crazy speeds like that. But, I, you know, I've seen those training videos. It, it is pretty crazy. Some of them actually, like, faint, right, because mm-hmm. it gets so fast. Uh, amid the heightened tensions on the Korean Peninsula, South Korea's chief of National Intelligence Service, Kim Gyu-hyun, landed in the U.S. for his unannounced visit uh, to the country. Tan, what, what's expected from the, uh, the secretive visit there? SJ, his itinerary remains confidential, but he's largely expected to meet with his counterparts, Avril Haines, the director of National Intelligence, and William Burns, the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. There's also a high chance he'll hold talks with National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Considering the fact that CIA Chief William Burns met with former President Moon Jae-in during his visit to Seoul last 
last year. Eyes are also fixed on whether Kim will pay a courtesy visit to President Joe Biden. Assessment of North Korea threats and drawing up countermeasures against them will likely top the agenda while also sharing information on North Korea's latest military activities and negotiating specific responses to North Korea's nuclear and ballistic missile provocations. Kim's visit comes as the two allies will uh, allies are bracing for North Korea's seventh nuclear test and other provocative acts. Kim is also likely to relay the Yoon administration's stance on the highly controversial issues of North Korea's fatal shooting of a South Korean fisheries official and alleged forceful repatriation of North Korean fishermen who defected to the South. The NIS filed complaints against former NIS heads Park Ji-won and Seo-hun earlier this month for destroying intelligence reports related to the 2020 death of a South Korean fisheries official and prematurely closing an investigation into the repatriation of North Korean fishermen, respectively. Uh, in the meantime, we are going to go into the economic side of things. Uh, certainly one of the biggest uh, issues at hand, uh, not just uh here in South Korea, but globally. But uh, back here in the country, the latest monthly report by the finance ministry points to a slowdown in domestic economic growth, largely due to mountain external risk factors. Uh, Song should tell us more about this. Right. The Ministry of Economy and Finance has expressed concerns over an economic slowdown in South Korea, and this comes for the second consecutive month. According to its monthly economic assessment report, uh, which is also known as the Green Book, on Wednesday, inflationary pressure has mounted both home, at home and abroad, which could lead to export growth losing steam. The report noted that the mounting external risk factors include the Fed's fast rate hikes, China's economic slowdown, and the prolonged war in Ukraine, and that these factors could bring further volatility to the Korean economy. South Korea's consumer prices jumped 6% in June from a year earlier, the fastest rise in nearly 24 years, and accelerating from a 5.4% spike in May due to spikes in prices of farm products and oil. However, the silver lining is that the country is on a mild recovery track thanks to improvement in the job market and a rebound in in-person services. South Korea's industrial production in all sectors increased as well if you look at the Green Book. In particular, the manufacturing and service sectors both posted almost 7.5% on-year growth in the month of May. Also, if you look at exports, um, it's, this is important because this is the main driver of the country's economic growth, right? It rose 5.2% on-year in June on demand for chips and petroleum products, as well as the waned impact of the strikes by truck drivers on logistics here in Korea. June's growth marked 20 months straight that exports have extended their gains, although it was the first time in 16 months that exports posted a single-digit growth figure. And this is why experts are saying that concerns about stagflation have increased, a mix of slumping growth and high inflation. Guys, uh, let's talk about, um, I guess, uh, some economic outlooks and uh, what South Korea's strategy to counter the economic threats that we're facing would be. First and foremost, uh, Tan, what would be South Korea's strategy to counter these economic threats, according to some of the experts here? You know, first and foremost, we all know the economic risks can't be lowered by South Korea alone. No, no. We need to further boost economic ties with key players and diversify our channels of economic diplomacy 
to explore new partner nations. Like visiting U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said yesterday, we need to seek stronger economic bonds with friendly nations to lower economic risks and mitigate the impact of global supply bottleneck as much as possible and thereby insulate South Korea from price increases caused by geopolitical risks. This will also be critical in stabilizing the production and supply of key raw materials and vital products like semiconductors. And some experts are also urgently calling for a currency swap deal with the U.S. and even Japan, if possible, to stabilize the exchange rates and minimize impacts of market volatility. Another thing being called for by many experts is the flexible yet stern policy measures from Korea's central bank. They say during the global stagflation in 1970 triggered by oil shocks, The U.S. Fed raised interest rates to up to 20 percent, which led to, of course, a plunge in stocks and housing prices and a surge in the unemployment rate. But the Fed's consistent monetary policies eventually dropped the inflation rate from over 13 percent to 2 percent. Experts are also calling for tax benefits and swift deregulations at companies to raise productivity and enhance supply through this challenging times. Last but not least, top experts are making one voice that Korea needs a pan-government committee dedicated exclusively to overcoming the national economic crisis to promptly administer required national tasks and draw practical measures. You know, speaking of, uh, I guess, diversifying portfolio, I read the news uh, earlier today that uh, the first half of this year, South Korea's dependency on Japanese imports of uh, material parts and equipment uh, was down 15.4% was what it was. Now, I mean, we call it dependency, but also means that we're just getting less imported goods of that uh, from Japan. And it does stem from, uh, you know, the 2019 uh, export restrictions mm-hmm. placed in uh, placed by Japan, which is, I think, the reason for why Park Jin went over to Tokyo. Uh, and I, I, th- I believe he did call, when he was talking to Yoshimasa Hayashi, uh, he told him, you know, listen, uh, you know, you got to lift this uh, restrictions in place here. You know, we'll just be good uh, trading partners once again. And so that that might be one of the key things uh, because we, as as much as we went, uh, you know, what is it, three years now without those key parts from Japan, mm-hmm. uh, it, some of the reports are coming out that, you know, South Korea is now struggling to create more goods because of the lack of these uh, key materials from Japan. So uh, diversifying portfolios, uh, you know, import portfolios is what we always talk about. Uh, Song Cho, in the meantime, let's also look at uh, the latter half of 2022, some of the risk and the economic outlooks according to uh, some of the experts out there. Yes, and for that, I'm uh, going to have to bring up the um, economic growth projections uh, Mm -hmm. that came out last month. And I feel like a broken record because... You know, we're talking about the same thing over and over again whenever we talk about the economy, um, you know, the similar risk factors that are um, expected to continue throughout this year until the end of this year. So major financial institutions and international organizations all seem to agree that uh, things are looking tough for the South Korean economy for the remaining year. Last month, the OECD slashed its growth outlook for the South Korean economy to 2.7%. And Fitch Ratings, which is a global credit appraiser, lowered its outlook to 2.4% as well. The IMF's projection stops at 2.5%, all lower than uh, Bank of Korea's 2.7% forecast. 
They all said slower global growth and China's economic slowdown are posing external challenges to the South Korean economy. Also cited as economic hurdles for South Korea were the Ukraine crisis, major central banks' monetary tightening, and further potential COVID-19 lockdowns in China. Meanwhile, South Korea's inflationary pressure has built up as energy and food prices have surged amid the war in Ukraine and global supply disruptions. South Korea's inflation is expected to keep rising rapidly as high energy and raw material prices have continued. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, I I think the biggest uh, reason for why we're going through all this is, let's face it, it's a war in Ukraine, right? Uh, That's lost. It led to food shortages. It's led to high energy prices and so forth. And it's really affected many different parts of the world. Uh, but at the same time, as because of the rising inflations, that means also a high interest rate. I, I, unless something miraculous happens mm. and the, the war in Ukraine is done and over with. Uh, I mean, a lot of the experts are saying this is not something that we're going to be done and over with by this year. They're saying even maybe, you know, till next year is what they're saying. And uh, it's really unfortunate because it came at a terrible time when I think the, the world's economy was on a recovery path mm-hmm. uh, after COVID-19. And uh, as soon as that happened, I mean, the... The Russian invasion of Ukraine, that really certainly messed everything up right now. Uh, governments have uh, rolled up uh, its sleeves to foster more semiconductor talents in Korea over the next 10 years. I mean, certainly this is going to be the biggest uh, sector moving forward. This as part of efforts to boost global competitiveness while tackling manpower shortages at domestic chip makers. Now, let's get more on this. SJ, this announcement comes in just about 40 days since President Yoon Song-yeol slammed the education ministry for its lackluster efforts to bolster the country's semiconductor industry, deemed uh, one of the key industries leading Korea's economic growth. So the education ministry, along with the ministries of finance, science and ICT and others, laid out plans today to nurture about 150,000 semiconductor talents over the next 10 years by easing university admission quotas and other regulations as well to increase the country's current semiconductor talent pool of around 177,000 to some 304,000 by 2032. Qualification requirements for professors in the sector will also be relaxed, while 20 universities and graduate schools will be designated as those specializing in semiconductors. And this will be applied equally to universities in the capital and non-capital regions. Officials project the annual number of student admissions for semiconductor-related education at occupational high schools, universities, and graduate schools to be expanded by up to 5,700. South Korea is home to Samsung Electronics, of course, the world's largest memory chip maker, and SK Hynix, the world's second largest DRAM supplier. And semiconductor talents are being viewed as one of the critical factors to get through the continuing chip supply woes and survive the intensifying global competition in the field, now deemed crucial for national security. I kind of wonder, though, right, like, like what increasing... Uh, the admission quota allow for more students to uh, go into studying that particular major, right? Like, like I've always said, like, I think semiconductors and all that stuff, IT sector is like the f- big future. And I mm-hmm. think uh, those that pursue that career moving forward, I think they're going to do absolutely well. But not everyone thinks that way, right? Not everyone wants to go to it. Like it used to be, I remember when I was in college, everyone was in business administration. Everyone was studying business because mm. they thought by going into business, you'll be 
It was either business or engineering, I think. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, that was everyone was in computer, like, engineering, like, engineering and stuff, or like business. And I know a lot of the uh, the the international students that uh, were in my school, they all majored in business. That, that mm. was a thing. But, like, no one, uh, like, I'm trying to think whether or not increasing the quota will actually bring about more people. Like, whether it could be an incentive to yeah, motivate yeah. students to... Of course. I think it will. It definitely will. And I definitely agree with President Yoon Sung-yeon on this. I think this policy came a bit late. We should have done this, like, from years ago. We are a country that is, or that has an economy that is largely led by the sector, right. largely led by the top conglomerates specializing in this specific field, and this has emerged as a new security issue, even. And while we have the intelligence, the manpower, and everything else to do it, did to do this, I, I've always wondered why don't we insert, inject more money and more efforts to expand. Uh, our growth and our potential in this field. Because my thing is, okay, let's say like I'm a uh, you know, future college student, right? And I find out, and I, and I want to study I broadcast journalism, but I find out that, you know, it's going to be easier to get into uh, the university through these, uh, you know, whatever, I don't know what this falls into, engineering, I think uh, maybe is where, what it would go into. Like it wouldn't cha- help me change my mind, right? Like I wouldn't go into that because... Uh, you know, just because it's easier to get into the school through this major is what I'm trying to say. Like, although, I mean, whether or not it works, and also by 2032, uh, it certainly seems like a whole lot of time right now, but... You have a point, but I think it'll do more good than harm. No, I no, think definitely. it's definitely worth trying. I, I, the other thing that I think people will argue then is, like, if you're bringing in too many people, right, like, would it dilute uh, the system? Like, because will everyone be kind of up to par? when you're accepting just about everybody. Although I, I guess increasing it by uh, 130,000 or so isn't going to dilute the, the talent pool too much, but still like the talent pool then, like what, what, would that dilute it? Will there be too many people? And, and then will there be enough jobs? And then will everyone go into that job is the other question, right? But uh, I could understand why they're pushing for this, the, the education, uh, asking the min- education ministry to do this. But I guess I that's feel like where... the problem is more jobs need to be created from the company's perspective and you know the jobs that guarantee high paying salaries i guess that will probably be an a really good uh, incentive for students and i think that's where the government support can come in since this is an industry uh, that's regarded critical for our economic growth and even national security i think much more government uh, assets government funds uh, can be injected to this field to uh, help out the problem that you just raised. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a good point there. Uh, speaking of which, uh, it looks like the Chebor groups here in South Korea, considering whether they'll have to revise their ambitious investment plans that they were announcing earlier this year as uh, fears of a global recessions are looming. Uh, a case in point is SK Hynix. Uh, this is the world's second largest memory maker, which has recently decided to delay its 4 trillion won. This is roughly about 3 billion US dollars expansion plan for its uh, local production facility. So, Sungcho, you have more on this. Yes, the company had planned to build a new plant, actually. It's, uh, it was called M17 within its chip-making complex in Cheongju, Chungcheongbuk-do province. The original plan was to start construction early next year and finish it by 2025. 
But at a recent board meeting held late last month, SK Hynix reportedly delayed the decision largely due to growing economic uncertainties, though the SK Hynix spokesperson declined to confirm the delay, saying, quote-unquote, nothing has been decided yet. Now, the latest news comes days after SK Group Chairman Chet Taewon last week um, at a forum hosted by the Korean Chamber of Commerce and Industry talked to reporters there and hinted at a possibility of change in the nation's second largest conglomerate's investment plans set up last year. Uh, and also, if we look at a recent Bloomberg article, it also suggested SK Hynix is considering cutting its 2023 capital expenditure by about a quarter to 16 trillion won, uh, which is about 12.2 billion dollars, citing unnamed sources familiar with the matter though the company denied the report afterward as well. Um, according to the article, SK Highness is sticking largely with plans to spend about 21 trillion won this year, building up DRAM and NAND capacity in response to upbeat demand during the pandemic years. But more recently, recession fears are turning consumers off pricey gadgets, driving down demand for chips that go into everything from smartphones to servers as well. So rising uncertainty over dwindling demand for the chips has forced a rethink of expansion next year. And if we look at other um, rival chip makers yeah. uh, in other parts of the world, such as Micron Technology, uh, it said that it plans to slow supply expansion next year as well and use existing inventory to feel part of the market demand. And Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturer TSMC also said it could also trim spending. Yeah, and uh, memory sector isn't the only sector that's impacted by this, I think. Uh, I think recently, uh, LG Energy Solution, they had plans to set up a plant somewhere in the United States. Uh, I think it was like in Arizona or something like that. Uh, but they're delaying it because right now the market situation uh, isn't really too rosy and uh, they're going to hold up on plans like this. I think there's a number of other plants that they were uh, thinking about uh, creating and uh, they're, they're delaying it until uh, later on. Uh, Cam Cam, who's uh, chiming in our live YouTube for the first time in a while. Uh, more companies will be up on the growth industry growth when there are more talented people available. It's true. Like, I'm just worried, right? Like, you know, I compare this with like baseball. Uh, some people are saying that, uh, you know, there's 10 pro baseball teams in the KBO right now. They're saying they should expand it to 12 because of the popularity of uh, Korean baseballs rising. But the thing is, there's not enough uh, pool of kids who play baseball as a high school. There's not a lot of high school baseball teams in Korea. And they're saying, like, you know, basically, if they're going to try to bring in all these players, it's going to just dilute the talent pool. Not a lot of good players are going to be playing uh, in these uh, in the league, and so that's what they're worried about. But I'm sure with Korea, I mean, we've always been an IT powerhouse. So I'm sure there's a lot of uh, talented uh, people out there, and uh, yeah, this is the future moving forward. Guys, uh, thank you very much for coming in today and you giving us our insights on some of these key issues. Please stay safe, and we'll see you guys again. Thank you. Thank you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.